Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom, I'm Jonathan Hassan, and this is yet another edition of TV7 Editor's Note. Uh, today with me in the studio is a dear friend and colleague, Colonel Richard Kemp, who is uh, the former chairman of COBRA military, uh, or the Intelligence Committee of COBRA, excuse me, as well as the commander of British forces in Afghanistan. Uh, I won't go into the entire list, uh, Colonel, because ultimately your cur- curriculum vitae is quite impressive. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, and it's a real pleasure to be with you here in Jerusalem. Well, the the pleasure and honor is all mine. Um, Let's open initially with prayers. We always do in this uh, uh, program, and then we'll communicate more about the situation, both here in Israel, in our region, and beyond. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to have Colonel Kemp here with uh, me in the studio. Father Lord, I pray that you will bless this program, bless our viewers all over the world that they may uh, benefit from today's production, that will grant, uh, that you will grant us clarity of mind uh, and witness to our tongues, uh, so we may truly be fruitful in all that we do. We give you all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, obviously, a co-panelist of TV7 Europa stands. Later this uh, week, we're actually going to be in Helsinki. Uh, from all places to communicate about uh, the variables that have to do with Europe. So we'll keep Europe outside of uh, today's episode as much as possible, even though I think it's uh, uh, there is no disconnect between the fact that uh, Russia is heavily involved here in the region. There's also mounting criticism on Israel uh, regarding uh, a lack of offensive weaponry. Um, being delivered to Ukraine. I'd like to hear your um, perspectives on this, but um, I don't think most people at home understand what COBRA actually is. Uh, could you explain a little bit your past positions? What what do, do these entail? Yeah, whenever there's a national emergency or a national crisis of some sort, whether it's inside the UK or uh, or overseas, um, whether it's it could be a war, it could be a kidnapping, a terrorist attack, something of that sort, uh, then COBRA meets to consider the government, the UK government's response to that situation. Sometimes it also meets on the basis of intelligence that indicates a crisis or some kind of attack is going to happen. And it's essentially chaired by the Prime Minister and made up mainly of cabinet cabinet ministers. And my function within that committee was to chair the, the intelligence group which is made up of the National Intelligence Services, MI5, MI6, GCHQ, Defence Intelligence and Police Intelligence in support of COBRA to make sure COBRA has the up-to-date picture and to, and to uh, take COBRA's future intelligence requirements and transmit them to the intelligence services. So it's a pretty fundamental aspect of the, gov- the British government dealing with crises. Uh, you've... Uh of course, received a lot of, of uh, praise by all um, Western countries for the instrumental uh, participation of COBRA in the war of uh, Ukraine uh, in its uh, defense against the Russian invasion. Um, to what degree is COBRA the, the forefront of this? COBRA is an extremely important element of the UK's response because anything that involves cross-government cooperation 
um, on a, a military or a defence or security or a crisis basis. That's you know Cobra coordinates. Mm. So of course, the, you know, in terms of direct support to Ukraine, military support, the Ministry of Defence is in the lead there. But there's m- many more aspects than that. There's the intelligence services heavily involved in the Ukraine war as well. There is, um, of course, you know, the question of uh, refugees coming out of Ukraine into the UK, which affects the Home Office. Um, there's there's the uh, sanctions on Ukraine, which uh, the Treasury are involved in, and all other government departments as well. So it brings it basically it brings all the whole coordination of of government in support of Ukraine's fight against against Russia. Very good. Obviously, the the sanctions upon Russia, um, particularly here. Uh, Let's draw in and and communicate more about our theater here. Um, Israel has been vigorously involved in an ongoing battle against terrorism. Uh, You've been instrumental uh, in past capacities in this war against terror. Uh, And I'd like to hear your perspective on the latest Operation Waves Breaker uh, taking place in the West Bank districts, Judea, Samaria, Jordan Valley, of course, uh, also included. Uh, to what degree do you see this um, being vital in, in Israel protecting its rear uh, ahead of potential conflagration beyond its borders? Mm. I, I, I should say we spoke about intelligence cooperation between Britain and Israel, and it, I was heavily involved in, in that as well as with other countries' uh, cooperation with Britain on intelligence. And I think... Um, it's true to say that the the relationship, the intelligence relationship, as well to a, maybe a slightly lesser extent the defence relationship, but certainly the intelligence relationship between Britain and Israel is absolutely unique um, in, in, in the extent of the cooperation that exists and I think the volume of exchange of intelligence. And I think that our two countries, Britain and Israel, depend extremely heavily on each other when it comes to countering threats and preempting threats uh, against our two countries on a very, you know, on a very, very wide scale. And I know for sure that many British lives have been saved by Israeli intelligence supplied to the UK. And I've little doubt the same applies in the opposite direction. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think that's, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that um, the British intelligence is directly involved in the current uh, counter-terrorist operations in, you know, in Judea and Samaria and, and elsewhere, but but you know, there, there is a, a long-standing and extant cooperation, uh, which maybe does contribute to, to, to what's going on there. I don't know. But, but it is a, that, that Operation Wavebreaker is a, a very uh, significant operation. And we saw um, over the last number of months, we saw a big uprise, a big uh, surge in terrorist attacks, particularly coming from Judea and Samaria uh, against Israelis. Um, and and it was the, yeah, essentially a, it, it was a continuation of what had been going on before, but much much more significant, I think. And one of the most significant factors is that the terrorists involved in it there was obviously very close connections between them and terrorists in Gaza, but the terrorists involved, many of them, uh, have been from uh, pe- people who have actually been either trained by or currently working for the Palestinian Authority Security Services, Mm -hmm. which is very troubling. And many of the weapons they use are weapons that were supplied to them in that capacity. And the training and the skills that they bring were given to them, including by British who who were involved in training the the Palestinian Authority um, security 
forces. Uh, you know that, and that that all of that has been utilised by these terrorists, which has made them, I think, more effective than they otherwise would have been. And they're not, uh, the, you know, they're not really under any influence. I don't think from the Palestinian Authority itself, which is very worried about what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And we've seen um, repeated successes by the IDF, by uh, the Israeli Security um, Authority. The, the Shin Bet and, and, and other agencies. We've seen how successful they've been in uh, curtailing these attacks. I think the attacks are still going on, but they'd be far worse if it wasn't for this success, which a lot of the time is down, probably 99.9% of the time is down to having very good intelligence. Mm. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a tough war. And you know I think only a few days ago, we saw a young girl killed in one of the operations in Janine, I believe it was. Um, and, you know, of course, the immediate outcry is this is the IDF killing innocent civilians, deliberately killing innocent civilians. Of course, it isn't that at all. And, you know, I don't know who killed this girl, whether it was, in fact, the Israeli security forces or whether it was Palestinians. We don't know. She was on a rooftop. There was no doubt crossfire involved. It's to, So far, it, the, the facts are unknown about it. But, of course, the immediate reaction is, to condemn the IDF. Condemning, uh, of course, uh, emanating from people who have never set foot in a battlefield uh, and have no idea what it entails, uh, which is uh, always quite um, upsetting to me personally. But, uh, you know, one, one of the things, and, and I've been communicating a lot with uh, different uh, people on the field, um, and they've mentioned time and again that many of the Palestinian casualties are actually um, casualties from Palestinian fire, uh, a lot of friendly fire. They're so tense from the fact that any second, any moment, the, the uh, Israeli units, uh, which are special operations units, obviously much more capable than uh, those uh, Palestinian militants in the field, that uh, they may mistaken or realized that they might come from one direction or another and start shooting and and, uh, sometimes kill their own men and sometimes injure their own men. Do you see this? Uh, Obviously, you had your own report on the Gaza uh, situation where the the Islamist Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad actually killed more of their own men than they managed to kill Israelis. Was that correct? Yeah, the the Palestinian... Islamic Jihad and Hamas rockets killed more Palestinian civilians in Gaza than they killed the Israelis they were supposed to be firing at by a significant amount. Um, and that's not unusual. I mean, I think this is the first time it's been much greater number. But in the past, we've seen their rockets uh, fired from Gaza, killing a lot of their people. So it's 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 a not unusual situation. And, and, and I think, you know, the blue, in, in general terms, blue on blue, is um, or friendly fire, fratricide, whatever you want to call it, is a um, it's a much misunderstood phenomenon. Of course, immediately, if you're talking about a battle between Western security forces, whether Israeli, British, or whatever, and there's an innocent civilian killed, the the the, the people they're fighting, whether it's Hamas, whether it's uh, you know um, any any terrorist group in Israel, or which are designated terrorist terrorist organizations right, yeah. by the international community, exactly. Majority, yeah. or whether it's the Taliban in Afghanistan, yeah. or Al Qaeda, or Islamic State, they 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 are geared to make sure that the 
their opponents, the, secu- the Western security forces, are blamed for whatever happens. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing in terms of the, the uh, an, an example, sorry, an example of that, I think is the Shireen Abu Akleh killing. Now, immediately, Israel was blamed for that. And, and a bullet was produced to prove that Israel did it. Well, of course, that bullet proves absolutely nothing. And I would say there's an equal likelihood or perhaps even a greater likelihood that that journalist was killed by Palestinian terrorists than it was by, than she was by the IDF. But that's not the agenda. The agenda's got to be, and the, the international media has got to make sure that Israel is blamed for it, whoever did it. Right. But the, the overall phenomenon of Blue on Blue is an interesting one because, um, I mean, I've been, personally, I've been involved in the Blue on Blue between British forces, British forces shooting at each other. Uh, and, and one thing that always surprises me is how infrequently this occurs. It occurs quite a bit, but it should happen more. And the reason I say that is because a battlefield is such a confused place with so many different people moving around without, you know, you don't necessarily even know where your own troops are, never mind where the enemy is. There's there's smoke, there's, there's fire, there's dust, there's, you know, people are very tired a lot of the time, there's confusion, and, and it amazes me we don't get more of this sort of thing. But we do, of course, get it, and the IDF have friendly fire. It's very rare that you'll find someone saying, oh, the IDF deliberately killed their own soldier in that situation, which occurred as a result of a mistake. But, of course... If, as a result of a mistake, which does happen, they kill uh, an uninvolved civilian, then they immediately get accused of doing it deliberately. So it's a it's a it's a misunderstood and often exploited phenomenon of battle. What can Israel do to better explain itself in such a scenario? It's 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 often again because of the confusion of war. Um, it's often very difficult to 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 be able to establish the fact quickly, and that's the important thing that the facts are established as quick as possible because you can be certain that Israel's enemies will make accusations, founded or unfounded, immediately. And it's very hard if Israel, for example, tries to counter that straight away and it turns out on further investigation that they were mistaken and they say, we didn't do it, but actually it turns out they did. So that's something they have to grapple with. Um, but, But a lot of the time... The, the facts never come out. And, you know, in the case of, for example, a, you know, uninvolved civilian in a Palestinian area getting killed, the body's gone. There's no time for any examination of the body to get forensic evidence or anything like that. The body's gone and then buried very quickly afterwards. So it's, 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 it's extremely hard. I think the only, when you, you know, in a normal situation, a normal situation of violence, let's say, in, inside a city or something, but not, not in a war, then you know the, the determination as to responsibility comes from forensic evidence, and that's obviously not often possible in war. So the only way of doing it is by surveillance and by CCTV, etc. And that's again a very difficult thing. So I, I would say that you know obviously Israel can try hard to to make sure that a battlefield they're involved in is covered as much as possible by surveillance, as much as you know obviously that's important for operations, but also for post incident investigation. Um, but you're never going to have a perfect situation. You're never going to be able to resolve this this problem. Uh, obviously, Shirin Abu Akla, um, she worked for a, a company, Al Jazeera, which is funded and owned by the biggest backer uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, speaking, of course, specifically about Qatar, uh, mm. which hosts members of the internationally recognized terrorist organization Hamas, 
and directs and, and funds also Hamas to a certain degree. Um, and now we see Al Jazeera, which is defaming Israel in every capacity possible, mm. uh, trying to take Israel to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, even though Israel is not a signatory of the Rome Statute. Mm. And uh, we see that same country, Qatar, being uh, exposed for deliberately bribing and actually uh, putting in its pocket a lot of European politicians exclusively from the radical left and progressive movements in Europe, um, which are, quite frankly, co pretty much the, the sector that is anti-Israel right. within the context of Europe. How does all of this basically um, clear up and how can we actually bring the truth up and, and say, you know what, we, we need to deal with those organizations trying to influence Western societies in order to attack Israel? Because they're quite frankly aware that they're not able to beat Israel straight up. Yeah, and, and I think the you know one, an interesting development is the one you mentioned of, of bribery and corruption within the European Union. And we'll from, talk about this more right. later this week. Indeed, but I think you know you've got you can't you can't afford to be saying that 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 kind of corruption and influence. And, and, you know, you, if, if you look at it, the World Cup going on now in Qatar, Qatar is not a natural destination for the World Cup. Mm. It had to be. It had to involve some kind of influence. I, I won't go any further than saying that, but but some kind of, I think, undue influence on there the people. There have been a lot of allegations right. of corruption and bribery. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can ignore that. And as you can't ignore what's going on with the EU at the moment, with things being exposed now, the huge mm. corruption... Um, and, and then you, you, can't, you can't disconnect that from the fact that, for example, right now the EU, not only is the EU um, mounting a long-term propaganda campaign against Israel, uh, and, and, you know, the, 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 the EU is, I think, one of the most important organisations involved in trying to undermine Israel and trying to, um, to criminalise the state of Israel. Uh, and, and indeed themselves... It ranges from that kind of propaganda through to funding illegal settlement activity by Palestinians in Israeli territory. Right. Illegal. And, and they know it's illegal, yet they still will do it. So you have to, you know, you have to look at that organization with great, great suspicion. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, 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 the key thing, it, obviously, there's, there are diplomatic issues with Israel deliberate, you know, directly exposing and accusing European and Western countries, in, in many cases, who have friendly relations with Israel mm. on the surface. Um, and it's difficult for Israel to make accusations. But I think countries like Britain, uh, who, who I hope more than, some, more than the EU as an institution, for example, and perhaps more than some other European countries, have a responsibility to, to play a, a significant role on Israel's behalf, not as agents of Israel, but you know, as a country that supports Israel, that wants to see Israel flourish. And only only a few days ago, our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that he would personally be working as hard as he could to, to, to help ensure Israel's security. Therefore, I think we have a responsibility to expose and to uncover and to, and to try and put an end as much as we can to this, this malicious and malign influence coming out of particularly Qatar, but other countries as well, Absolutely. Into, into Europe. Absolutely. Um, not to forget that Qatar has been 
located. It's been shunned out of the GCC, the, the Gulf Cooperation Council. It's been in loggerheads with uh, Saudi Arabia for quite some time. Um, and the Americans managed to try and, and resolve that issue for their own interests, of course. But then Qatar also became a major non-NATO ally of the United States under the Biden administration, which I find quite odd because mm. the Biden administration has been promoting itself as the, the champion of human rights. Well, it has nothing to do with human rights when we're talking about engaging in such a relationship. Um, nonetheless, uh, we have roughly six minutes, and I'd like to hear your perspective also as the commander, uh, the former commander of, of British forces in Afghanistan. Um Afghanistan has been, once again, flourishing with uh, Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has once again manifested itself um, if we thought uh, or if uh, it's been promoted that uh, the, the Islamic State, Wilayat uh, Khurasan, the, the district of Khurasan uh, in Afghanistan, is a separate entity of Al-Qaeda. Well, apparently, you know, these are relatives, those are families, they might serve a different master, but, you know, they have uh, grand schemes and, and strategies that ultimately align themselves and they have the same aspirations. Are we expected to see more coming out of that part of the world uh, threatening uh, the, the West, the Christian world for that matter? I think it was entirely predictable from the time that uh, President Biden announced his withdrawal from Afghanistan that leaving basically a security vacuum there was going to result in the rise of al-Qaeda and other Islamic extremists in that country, as we saw before 9-11, which is the reason we were in there, to prevent that happening. And successfully, I think, OK, the Afghanistan campaign was not a success in every respect. It was a failure in many respects. But one of its successes was it did prevent Afghanistan from again becoming a major base of operations for al-Qaeda or other jihadists who attacked the West. When we left there... Uh, it was inevitable this was going to happen again. And, of course, Pakistan has a major role in Afghanistan. Pakistan helped to promote and to support the Taliban fighting against the West in Afghanistan and is now perhaps the major or one of the major players in Afghanistan, China being another one, another major player. And, of course, Iran has its fingers in the, in the pie. And, and Iran helped also, as did China and Russia helped, support uh, Islamic terrorists in Afghanistan fighting against... So it's West. basically part of strategic competition. Very much so. Mm. And I think, you know, so I think the answer to your question really is we will, we can and we should expect to see this flourishing again in that country and we can't do a huge amount about it because we've withdrawn most of the assets or perhaps all of the assets that we could have used to counter this. So Qatari guarantees were not sufficed? Sorry? Qatari guarantees. Uh, I don't think. I don't think necessarily we can count them as as rock solid. And incidentally, it was it was a major strategic failure, a, you know, bad strategic decision to pull out. I believe that not only did that decision result in in Afghanistan becoming a much greater threat to the West than it's been for many years now, but it also, I think, was directly responsible for Putin's decision to invade Ukraine because he saw the the strategic weakness of not just the United States, but NATO, because it was a NATO operation, of right. course. And he saw that and he understood that if he went into Ukraine, NATO would not be willing to oppose him directly. And that's proved, of course, to be the case. Of course, NATO has been very helpful in, in many different ways 
countering Russia, but they haven't directly opposed him. So I think that, you know, that that decision to withdraw from Afghanistan had untold strategic consequences and not, I haven't mentioned it, I'm not going to bang on because I know we're running short of time, but not least China, of course, President Xi was watching exactly what happened in Afghanistan. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, as you said, well, we have roughly three minutes left and I'd like to hear your take on, uh, there has been growing criticism of Israel for not um, providing Ukraine with uh, the Iron Dome, even though I don't know exactly how the Iron Dome would help in such a situation. Um, is there a disconnect between the understanding that a multi-layered system or multiple systems within multiple layers are necessary to be able to truly protect uh, Ukraine, which is vastly larger, uh, territorially speaking, with strategic depth than what Israel has and is able to offer? Yeah, I think it's, it's you know, people look at Israel and they see the effectiveness in the last few conflicts emanating from Gaza in particular of the Iron Dome, and they think the Iron Dome is the answer to everything. Of course, Israel has a multi-layered air defense system. And, uh, you know, one of the, one, one thing I would say is that the, the Ukrainians have been very effective so far at countering these missiles and drones provided by Iran in some cases uh, and, and shooting them down. Not, not, not 100%, of course, and they've suffered huge, huge damage because they haven't been. But, of course, they want more. They want more. And, and the West should be providing them more. NATO countries should be providing them more. Israel's been criticized for not doing so. I think that's, that criticism is, is false because, for, I mean, there's a number of reasons. I think one of the most important reasons is that if Israel was to provide some of its air defense systems to Ukraine, Israel doesn't have air defense systems just hanging around doing nothing. Right, yeah. they, they're needed to defend this country. And Israel it would be wrong, in my view, to, to make itself more exposed by helping uh, you know, a friendly country like Ukraine. And the other, the other uh, I think, the other thing that people should be aware of is that Israel is doing a huge amount under the radar to help Ukraine, an amount that most of us will never know about. But despite, you know, aside, that, that aside, I think, I think you know, we, 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 un we, would, we would underestimate what Israel's doing if we ignore that. Well, um, uh, obviously, we're not going to confirm or deny anything. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, obviously, Russia has been allowing itself to become increasingly close to Iran and has been uh, promising a lot of promises uh, to the Islamic Republic uh, with regard to uh, bolstering its capabilities in the region um, in exchange also for the weaponry. But it, this leeway that the Russians are allowing themselves comes because this alleged Israeli support under the radar. Um, this is all the time that we have for today, uh, Colonel. Uh, thank you so very much for taking out of your busy schedule uh, to be part of uh, today's episode of TV7 Editor's Note. It's been my pleasure. And I'd like uh, to thank all of you at home as well for taking uh, of your time uh, to participate in uh, today's discussion with Colonel Kemp. Uh, fascinating indeed. Uh, and we will be uh, once again uh, in the same, um, uh, a different panel, different country also in Helsinki for TV7 Europa Stands, which will air on uh, Thursday evening. So st stay tuned for more on the geostrategic situation of uh, Europe, but also implications that are going to have um, on Jerusalem and on Israel. Uh, but until next time, shalom.
Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.